The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and my co-host from her home studio once again is Dr. Claudia McKella. Good morning, Claudia. How was your first week back to work? I bet it felt like the first day of school. Good morning, Tina. Yes, it was awesome, and it really did feel like the first day back to school. Um, There was excitement. There was anticipation. You know, I really, really missed being in my clinic and just being around people. Um, It made me feel really good, and it was really inspiring for patients as well because they felt like they're getting back to some sort of normal. I do have to admit it was a different experience. We're all masked up, and we are really maintaining our social distancing protocols. That being said, phones have been ringing off the hook, so I'm asking everyone to be patient, no pun intended. (laughs) We're trying to get everyone back into the schedules, and we're trying to get everybody in at the preferred time. We're just trying to do it in a really organized way so that we can continue to flatten this curve so we can all get on with life. So can I ask you, how do you practice physical distancing in your chiropractic work? Is that impossible? Like, how do you do it? (laughs) Okay, so when I'm treating, it's impossible to be, you know, six feet apart, which is why it's really important to make sure that we're screening patients properly prior to entering. So we have a whole bunch of, like, you know, uh, public health mandated procedures plus our own procedures in place so that by the time somebody is in the room with me, we know that we're both healthy, we both haven't been um, exposed as far as our own knowledge, none of us have a fever, we haven't traveled anywhere. Those are all the things that we need to make sure that we get out of the way before you're in a room with me. So I wear a mask, my patient wears a mask, my patient wears gloves, and the room is always sanitary and the clinic is actually quite sterile. It's interesting because the way we've designed our clinics is that the front reception area will no longer have people really waiting there, but that will be the starting point to have people who come to the treatment area really be sterile. So like everything, you're going to wipe your hands, you're going to put on a clean mask, you're going to do everything prior to entering the treatment area. So this way, when I'm in the room with you, we know that the risk of contracting coronavirus is going to be very slim. So obviously your protocols have changed. Does that mean that you're seeing fewer patients because of these measures? So what we've had to do to accommodate all of our patients, because surprisingly enough, a lot of people are really wanting to get back into the swing of things. And I think in part it's because we're all realizing that our health is the most important thing in our lives right now and should be always. So what we've had to do is we've had to extend our work day as much as we possibly can because I do believe that kind of having a curfew sort of idea is really beneficial because it will prevent people from being out late. But we're starting earlier and we're, some of us are working a little bit later to accommodate so that we can constantly have proper flow and maintain uh, cleaning protocols and social distancing. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that work-life balance is absolutely still, and probably more so now than ever before, absolutely necessary. Are there patients or clients who maybe have not come back, and how do you gain back that consumer confidence? Well, I honestly think that it's just going to be a matter of time. So I'm not really concerned that patients aren't going to come back. I think it'll just be a matter of time, because like I, I always said that there are 
different groups of people who are reacting differently to this pandemic. There are those people who are taking it very lightly and those that are taking it very seriously. I think we should all be in the middle, following protocols, wearing your masks. And I feel like once people understand that this is a new normal, wearing a mask and you know, wiping your hands and making sure that you are keeping your distance, everything is going to get back to a new normal. So people are going to start trickling in. They're going to realize that they have to get on with their lives. They have to get on and taking care of their health. So I think it's just a matter of time. I don't think really we're going to lose patients. I think it's just going to take time to gain that consumer confidence. But one thing I do know for sure is that if you show people that we can deal with this and we can't overcome this, they're going to have the confidence to come back and do what they need to do. Now, you also mentioned that this was an inspiring time for your patients, that they felt good coming back to see you, to see your staff. What exactly did they tell you? So the one thing that as soon as I see my patients, you know, I get really excited. So it was bizarre, first of all, not to hug people, right? Mm -hmm. But we had great conversations. So what I'm hearing from my patients, like, it is so great to see you. I really missed you. I loved, you know, the fact that I could come in and actually see you, and you've made me feel good. So those are all things that are happening before a treatment, during a treatment, and then, of course, after treatment. Because one of the things that I think is really important is like that human connection, some sort of human interaction. I feel like that's what people are missing the most, is just being able to be with people. Um, And just getting out of your house, so maybe escaping from the people you've been in quarantine with, and just seeing a different face, but also a familiar face. And that's so important. You know, I think part of it is, yes, connecting with people. But I also believe that often, especially our seniors these days, are missing that physical touch, that hug that they might get from their grandchildren. You know, and I think maybe getting back to some sort of normalcy will help them as well through this. You know what? I agree with you, Tina. I think that we are all missing that human connection. I feel like the elderly have been the most affected and because we're all very fearful about, you know, them contracting this virus. So I feel like the more we can interact with people, even if it's just speaking and we're standing six feet apart, it's getting a step closer towards getting back to the way things kind of were previously. When we come back, author and addiction recovery advocate Brian Cuban joins the show. This is The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Have a question for Dr. Claudia? Call us at 416-335-1059. Tweet us at 105.9 The Region or email us info at 1059theregion.com. At Highland Jam, we are automotive professionals. We adhere to strict protocols during the sales consultation and purchase process so our clients feel confident in their health and safety while making their automotive decisions. Physical distancing is a priority, but whether it be virtual sales consultation and product discovery or an in-showroom appointment, we will spend the time you need to help you make the correct choice for you. Take advantage of our no payments for 180 days or have your first lease payment waived on select models. Highland GM on Young Street in Aurora. The experience you deserve. A proud member of the Aurora Chamber of Commerce. 
Classic Italian dishes await you as Luna's owners Melanie and Dominic bring their passion and decades of experience to your dining table. From their signature tagliatelle to mouth-watering mushroom risotto and pizza di Parma, you will always find something to delight your senses and transport you to the old country right here in Newmarket. They pride themselves on delivering delicious, authentic flavors, and in the present circumstances, they do it safely with contactless curbside pickup. Go to lunaristorante.ca for hours of operation, menu, and how to order. Luna Ristorante, 16655 Young Street in Newmarket. If you have missed looking through racks of clothes trying to find that perfect outfit, your wait is over. Oak Ridge Fashions at 14800 Young Street in Aurora is open. Browse through our many brands and see the colors and fabrics in person in the safety of our sanitized environment. Prefer shopping at home? We offer online shopping with free shipping of purchases over $99 at oakridgefashions.com. Worried about fit? At home or in person, we can help. However you choose to shop, Oak Ridge Fashions is here for you because feeling good about how you look is always in fashion. Proud members of the Aurora Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. I'm Tina Cortez and my co-host is Dr. Claudia McKella with today's next guest. Thank you, Tina. Our focus today is a topic that doesn't get as much attention as it should. Men's health and mental wellness is such an important topic because men generally don't speak about their feelings. A study conducted in the U.S. on adolescent males concluded that 25% expressed greater desire for toned and defined muscles because they felt they didn't look as good as they should. Body dysmorphic disorder is becoming increasingly more common in males and is cause for severely low self-esteem. So joining us today um, is Brian Cuban. He is an attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, Claudia. Thanks for having me on. Great. Can you please share with the listeners a little bit about yourself and your story? Sure. Well, I'm in long-term recovery from uh, cocaine addiction, uh, alcoholism, uh, alcohol use disorder, and uh, bulimia, and I've also uh, struggled with steroid addiction. Uh, I've been in recovery for uh, over 13 years. I was uh, born, I, I, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I have two brothers, a lot of people know my older brother, Mark, Maverick and Shark Tank, and I have a younger brother, Jeff. We all live here in Dallas. Uh, practically walking distance from each other. We're all very close. Uh, I've been married now going o- over three and a half years, and my uh, wife and I have been together actually uh, a long time, over 14 years, and she's been a very instrumental part of my recovery. And uh, it, it's been an interesting journey uh, from alcohol to cocaine uh, that uh cratered my legal career. I was trading uh, uh, for the MBA championship for the first time in 2006. I was trading tickets for cocaine, getting them from my brother trading for cocaine. Uh, so I, I run the gambit of uh, behaviors and consequences during that time. But uh, my, I am currently in therapy for over uh, 14 years, probably going on 15 years now. I'm a big believer of a psychiatrist. And so all of these things have uh, been helpful uh, therapy, the, uh, the abstinence, the substances have been helpful, and also dealing with the uh, underlying trauma. And there's a lot of uh, underlying trauma in my childhood uh, that have helped me uh, 
maintain a stronger recovery today. Well, Brian, congratulations first on your recovery, and thank you for sharing some of the details of your story with us. Can you tell us a little bit about when did you start to have body image concerns? When did it start for you? When I was a heavy kid, to get into some of the underlying trauma to talk about that, and uh, talk about it generally, uh, so not to trigger anyone. Uh, I, was, I, I was a heavy kid, and there was a lot of fat shaming in my house. Uh, and, and I say that with the disclaimer that I do not blame my parents for anything I went through. Parents don't cause eating disorders. Parents don't cause addiction, as I'm sure both of you, I sure know, there's a difference between cause and correlation. Uh, but uh, there was fat shaming, and then I was bullied at school. I was physically assaulted over my weight. And all of this led to uh, a uh, looking at someone in the mirror and seeing someone who was just as, as I was called quite a bit, a fat pig who was unlovable. And it, it first really uh, manifested itself in college, my freshman year in college, when I began restricting my food intake. Uh, and back then, I wasn't diagnosed. I probably would have been eating disorder, not otherwise specified, even though I know that's not a di- diagnosis anymore. Uh, and then it transitioned into traditional binging and purging. And then it also, I added exercise bulimia to that, which is obsessive-compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. And all of these things, I can't say there is any one bright line moment where, where I just started having a negative body image. There were bright line moments when uh, I, I, I guess there was a bright line moment when I started to see myself in a different way in my reflection, but it really was a cumulative trauma-building experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, you know, because I'm a mother of a son. And, you know, that's why this topic is extremely important to me because I see the effects that, you know, what people say to you can affect you later on in life. And um, your book, Shattered Image, you know, it's such a candid look into your life. And now writing this book, was that part of the healing process, like letting it all out and, and you know, candidly explaining your, you know, your deepest secrets, so to speak, was that part of your healing Absolutely. It was very cathartic, as, uh, as first-time uh, recovery memoirs tend to be a lot of people. And so what it, was... It was... It was something I ran by my mom before it was published uh, because, you know, there are different aspects about the fat shaming in the book and such, and again, I don't blame her. Uh, she didn't cause any of these things. Uh, and so, yes, it was very cathartic in helping me explore... Uh, my body image and uh, why I felt certain ways and how I felt about myself at the time I wrote it. Can you tell us how your eating disorder and the addictions affected your relationships, whether it's with family or friends, even your career? I've, I've had three failed marriages that all failed uh, in part because, because of my drug, alcohol, and body image issues. And the, the thing about relationships where drug and alcohol and these things are involved is uh, it, it's easier to build up a wall, put a wall around so you don't have to let any feelings out and you don't have to project that your spouse or significant other, your girlfriend or your boyfriend sees the worst in you, right? Sees this bad, ugly monster that you see in yourself. And that, that projection is very common. And so, but when you put up that wall around yourself, this impenetrable wall, so the ugliness you feel inside can't get out, 
The flip side of that is no feelings can get in. And so what happens is it takes a path of least resistance where you're just so afraid that if you open yourself up to your loved one, they're going to say, you're fat and ugly. And even though you know, rationally, you know that's not going to happen. But the emotion is so overpowering. The feeling built up of years of trauma is so overpowering that you believe, that you believe it from a feeling standpoint. And it becomes easier just to take the path of least resistance where the significant other finally says, you must not love me. And to say that I, you, I do means having to drop that wall, which I wouldn't do, so it becomes easier to say, you're right, I don't. And so now you, you talk about you know, your current marriage and congratulations on that and how the three failed marriages previous. So what did you do differently? Were you really, do you, like, if somebody is in the same situation as yourself dealing with the addiction and the self-esteem, do you suggest that they just come clean with their partner, express what they're feeling, so that this way there's no um, wondering what's going on behind the scenes, so it, you're completely no. up front? One thing I don't like, I am not a therapist, I'm a lawyer. Right, right. <laughs> so I, I, one thing I definitely don't do is try to diagnose the masses, right? Because everyone's going through different things. Uh, people need safe spaces. <laughs> so the, the, the last thing I want to do is say do this, this, and this and cause damage in someone's life. Right. I can talk about what I did in my lived experience. Uh, I got into therapy, and in my therapy with my psychiatrist was really the first time I allowed myself to be vulnerable. And this was after a couple of years of lying to my psychiatrist for two years because I was too ashamed of myself, too ashamed of what I've gone through. Oh I mean, guys don't get eating disorders. And that's the way I felt. Guys don't stick their finger down their throat. Guys don't do this. Uh, guys don't have quote-unquote fat days, right? Clint Eastwood doesn't have quote-unquote fat days. <laughs> and so it, it's just not something, you know, as men, as males, and especially being a baby boomer, I was raised in a very different time where we did not talk about these things, uh, where to even talk about, uh, you, talking about depression, talking about this, you, it was almost as if it would be contagious. You just didn't talk about it. You kept it to yourself. And that's the way I was raised, and that's the way I think most boomers were raised, uh, male boomers who... Uh, just uh, hold these things in. But I finally uh, started getting vulnerable with my psychiatrist and, I, and, and, and getting vulnerable with my wife. And as you realize, you have to explore the feelings. Uh, on, you know, the honesty really was therapeutic. And it's a process. It's a process. Like I said, I'm still in therapy. And for the body dysmorphic disorder, I've been in many different types of therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy. I went through years where, and this was during a time when I was uh, abusing steroids, anabolic steroids, and I was huge. I think there's a picture in my book. You couldn't drag me into a swimming pool with my shirt off. That, that is how I felt about my body, even as I had all these muscles. No matter how big I got, no matter how muscular, no matter how, how lean, no matter how this, no matter how that, no matter how much plastic surgery I paid for, I looked in the mirror and saw a fat pig, a 17-year-old fat pig. And that is body dysmorphic disorder, right? That, that's the nature of it. When we take these non-existent imperfections or even minute ones 
and have this obsessive compulsive feeling that they are exaggerated to the point where it affects our ability to function. So, Brian, um, I just want to mention for our listeners that you are calling in from, from Dallas, Texas. The connection is not great, but the honesty that you are sharing with us is so greatly appreciated, and, and we thank you for that. You you know, you said that you are a lawyer, but you also write, you're an author. You wrote recently that being an active participant in a compassionate community is more important than it ever has been in most of our lifetimes. What did you mean by that? What I meant by compassionate community is that, uh, especially now, it is, we have to step outside of our comfort zone. We have to create our compassion wheels where for the, that cover all the things that we feel in a day, in a week, in a month. Who are the people that we can reach out to? Who are the people that love us? We have to be empathetic. We have to put each other, we have to be able to put, each other, put ourselves in the shoes of someone else. Compassionate community that is working best is when it is uncomfortable that someone in that community is hurting. And the entire community senses that discomfort. Reach out. Because we have to remember when and especially this is true around depression. When we're struggling, when I'm struggling uh, through major depressive episodes, I came close to suicide in 2005. I didn't want to reach out. I didn't want to have to leave my house. I didn't leave my house. I had a weapon on my nightstand. It was my compassionate community that saved my life. A friend of mine who saw something was off, noticed something was off, and called my brothers. That's what I'm talking about with compassionate community. Having your group of people you're connected to who are willing to step outside of their comfort zone and having that group with who you are willing to step outside of your comfort zone. That's just absolutely beautiful. And so if you had one positive message to give to listeners about your struggle with body dysmorphic disorder and addiction, um, what would that be? I would say don't. Here's the thing with body. I'm going to separate them out because body dysmorphic Dysmorphic disorder can be a very nuanced type thing, a very shameful type thing, right? Because, well, we all have body image issues. Well, yes, everyone, there's no one, there's no one that looks in the mirror, at least in the industrialized world, at one day or another and says that sucks, right? That's just, that's just how it is. Uh, but that is normative discontent. That is not someone not leaving the house. That is someone, you know, for weeks on end. That is someone who doesn't go to, that isn't someone who doesn't go to work. That isn't someone who spends every cent they have on plastic surgery. Those are very, very shame-inducing things. And because body dysmorphic disorder is also stigmatized as a female disorder and also misconstrued as an eating disorder, which it is not. And so what I would tell you is that I understand that it's difficult. I understand that it's nuanced. But recovery is possible, and that doesn't mean recovery is where it just disappears. Okay, I'm not trying to put blue skies in anyone's head because that's not fair and that is intellectually dishonest. But there, it is possible to explore our underlying trauma, explore our lives, find the qualified professional, find the safe setting. I know it's hard, but open up. Because I can say, at least for me, my recovery from BDD, body dysmorphic disorder, didn't begin in earnest until I started truly peeling back the layers 
and exploring that 16-year-old hurt Brian who felt so ashamed of his body. That is when the recovery began. Find the qualified professional. Find the safe space, the comforting space to start exploring it. Because body dysmorphic disorder does not happen in a vacuum. Right. And that's what I loved about your book, The Shattered Image, and all your other books for that matter. You're very candid, you're very open, and I feel like you are really conveying an amazing message. And you're right. You know, most people don't think that men should be honest about their feelings and about how they look. So I feel like this is like a great movement. We so appreciate your time. If listeners want to reach out or learn more about you, where can they do that? They can go to my website at www.brianwithanibriancuban.com, www.brianwithanibriancuban.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, just Brian Cuban. You can find me on Twitter, at Cuban. I'm very, you can contact me through my website. I'm very accessible, and I, do, and I will respond. Thank you so much, Brian. We really appreciate your time and all of your insights. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks. You too. And one more time for our listeners who may have missed it, that is briancuban.com. And Dr. Claudia, please remind our listeners how to connect with you. You can reach me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Machiella or my website, www.thecenterforhealth.ca. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the wellness prescription, go to our website, 1059theregion.com. Thanks for listening. Connect with us on Twitter at 1059theregion or call 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. This is 1059 The Region.